So strongly thinking about starting the sermon off by ending my prayer with amen and then just staring at you and not saying anything. And I, I was toyed around with like 10 seconds or maybe like 45 seconds or a minute, like a long time. And then I, and the whole point of that would be to, to help you understand and help us to feel how uncomfortable we are with waiting. And then I realized I don't want to do that either. And I'm in need of this sermon as much as anybody else, right? Because we live our lives in the same way that we listen to podcasts at two times speed, right? Only a country and a culture like ours could take the words and the phrase carpe diem, which was originally written by the poet Horace as an encouragement to enjoy and to savor a moment. Only we could take that to mean you need to take action because you're, you're wasting time. You need to move. You need to be busy. Nothing recalibrates that habit of our hearts quite like Advent does. Advent means coming. It means arrival. It's the season that's leading up to Christmas where the church enters into Israel's longing through God's Word at the time that Israel was in that season and, the, and entering into that tense anticipation of the Messiah, of God's final redemptive plan coming to fruition. It's a season of God's people intentionally, whether we feel like we are there already or not, waiting in the dark for the dark of night to be crowded out by the light of morning. It's honest. Advent is very honest. It's unhurried. It's an exploration of hunger, of noticing not just that your stomach is growling, spiritually speaking, but the tone of its growl, how loudly it's growling. And we do this in order to savor and actually understand and appreciate the gift and the beauty of Christmas itself, but also to understand that Christmas even then is still also a foretaste of what we have to look forward to. It's instructive in that sense, right? We don't just remember the advent of Christmas past. We do, we, we do that remembering in order to see the present more clearly and to live in anticipation of a future advent of Christ's return. In other words, Advent helps us to live now in anticipation of an even greater feast, joy, and satisfaction of every longing brought about by Christ's return. You know, it's incredible Like when, when you realize that this parable, it, the, the very telling of the parable is as important or more important than what Jesus is saying in the parable, right? Because he's saying, here's how you wait for me, but he's here. That's confusing, isn't it? There's a tension there. Like, why, I don't understand. Jesus, why, why are we waiting for you when you're here already? And there's a sense that we can identify with that because Jesus is with us in and through the Holy Spirit. And so Jesus is present here, and yet we are still waiting for him. We're waiting for the master of the house. It's so meta, isn't it? <laughs> the way that he tells this parable, you, you'll notice there's, there's some like, there's like some really big words and some high action, high energy words in here that, that implies that there is this, this waiting that we are in the midst of is characterized by both a long absence. Like this, this, the master of the house has been gone for a while. He's, he's had to entrust all, whole areas of responsibility to, its, to his servants and to his, gate, his housekeeper. But at the same time, there is this imminent anticipation of his return. And so the, the passage this morning uses two words that we're going to talk about 
that describe how we wait for Advent. Two words. Those words are watching and waking. Watching and waking. Now, watching, I know I said, you know, when I was reading verse uh, 33, it says, be on guard, and I I changed it to watching because the alliteration is definitely better. Um, But also, being on guard implies, uh, in the way that we understand it, a a kind of anticipation of threat. And there's, there's a little bit of that tone, but it's not primary. It's more of an anticipation and a watching and a looking for the return of the household's master. Because if not for the master, right, the household would, has no reason to exist. That's the whole purpose. It's the whole reason they are there in the first place in this parable. And so being a, a servant or a doorkeeper in the master's house means, and this is what watching means, right? It, it means making room for Jesus. Watching is making room for Jesus and his return. George Carlin, uh, I wouldn't recommend all of his stuff, uh, but in, I think it was a special in like 2008 or so, he, he coined this phrase, it has since become a meme, uh, which is, uh, Jesus is coming, look busy. And, I, okay, when it's, it, that's hilarious, right? Okay, it's absolutely hilarious. Um, but also, it's kind of damning, isn't it, that that, that, is, that is so funny? Because he's, he's saying this in response to a church that acts as if that's true, right? We, we think that Jesus is coming, so that means we need to look busy. That's not Advent. That's Elf on a Shelf. And I <laughs> told you I wasn't sure what was going to come out of my mouth this morning. I'm not a huge fan. We can talk about Big Brother. I'm sorry, Elf on the Shelf later. Um, Jesus is coming, looks, look busy, is expressing a more of a selfish concern with appearance and checking a box than actually a genuine concern to steward well what the master of the house has entrusted us with. That's, it's, it's actually completely missing the point. It's still funny, but it's missing the point. Richard Loveless, uh, in his book, which is, man, it is a very good book, Dynamics of Spiritual Life, he says, um, the ultimate concern of most church members is not the worship and service of Christ and evangelistic mission and social compassion, but rather survival and success in their secular vocation. In other words, we're about our busyness instead of his business. Their religious lives, however, do not satisfy their consciences at the deepest level, and so there is a powerful underlying insecurity in their lives. I think the core of this is rooted in the reality that this is not our house and we're not the master, but we often think we are. That is our hearts being prone to wander. But we're not, it's not our house, and we're not the master, but we make room for his return to the degree that we look out for his purposes, right? The, to the degree that we look out for his purposes more than our own, to the degree that we make his concerns our ultimate concern, and to the degree that we welcome what, and also whom, he welcomes. Watching is making room for Jesus. This is the opposite of, you know, Jesus is coming, look busy. It's, 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 po- it's actually the opposite in the sense that it is pausing and slowing down long enough to ask, am I more hospitable to Jesus, his word, and his purposes? Or am I more hospitable 
to my plans, my wants, and my purposes. The title of my sermon this morning is, is Advent Trains, the heart, Trains Our Hearts to Wait. And our hearts need to be trained to wait because they wander into assuming that we are our own master. When Loveless says that, that there's this powerful underlying security in our lives, it's because we center our spiritual lives first and foremost on compromised hearts as our default. I have a personal example of me doing this in a... I don't know, it's surprising to me, maybe it's not surprising to you, but this last week we had a a spiritual formation incubator, and it's a six-week kind of like, here's how we do discipleship at the table, and it was the last session, and I was, you know, saying some things about big picture and reflecting about how, what's gone on and what we've done over the last six weeks and kind of what we can look forward to uh, in the future, and while I'm, you know, speaking brilliantly about Jesus, um, and his, his lordship and over our lives, uh, in that moment, our, all of our phones start going off because of an, an Amber Alert. And I think in the moment, I said something along the lines of like, man, well, there's, you know, there's another example of the brokenness of our world. And I started to move on, but thankfully somebody in the, in the incubator actually interrupted me and said, hey, can we, can we actually stop and pray for... Pray for the little girl who's missing. And I'm very glad that she did. Because even in, as I'm teaching about Jesus, his word, and his purposes, I was waiting for him, but I wasn't watching for him. I wasn't watching for Jesus in that moment. And that was exposed by the fact that I felt more interrupted by that alert than I welcomed his knocking. So waiting without watching. Watching requires introspection. We make room for Jesus by holding up our priorities to his and asking whether they align or not. And you know, we have grace when they don't. It's okay. It's actually an invitation. That's why he is the divine host. Not condemnation, but invitation. There are a few priorities that we can hold up that are a greater reflection of whether we are watching or just in, in our waiting or whether we are waiting without watching, then how we steward especially the resources that he has given us, especially how we, in how we steward money, right? The, the Bible says, and this is something that a lot of times, um, you know, Christians get wrong. Some people, you know, misquote the Bible. I actually did this once in a sermon and I was rebuked afterwards and I wish I could eat my words and I couldn't. But it's not money that is the root of all evil. It's the love of money that is the root of all evil. Paul says that in 1 Timothy. And he says that because money, if you think about what it is, it is, a, it is a pure representation of value. So whatever you value is whatever you spend it on. And so it is the love of money that is the root of all evil, not money itself. But when we love money, and that leads us to evil, it is because we value ourselves. Because what we are valuing in a love of money is a love of self, selfishness, self-centeredness. This, by the way, is why I hate, I hate Giving Tuesday so much. You didn't get an email from me because you subscribed, unsubscribed to all those emails anyway, right? Be honest, you can be honest, it's okay. But what drives me crazy, like I get the intent of it in terms of like, 
okay, we're, we're, this is the season of buying for Christmas and buying for people, and it's like the American holiday of consumerism writ large, and so it would be a good idea if we set aside one day for, for giving and generosity, and like, wouldn't that be great? But unfortunately, I think the way that we use it is way too much like uh, when you're out to dinner and you can't choose between two desserts, so you choose both of them, and why? Because I ate a salad. You get two desserts because you ate a salad. It's like, well, also, did, was that salad just drenched in ranch? Like, you're undoing the good of it. You're actually just checking a box. You're, you're saying Jesus is coming, look busy. By the way, this, this actually extends into our charitable giving too. Right, let me ask this question. Do you, do you give, when you, do, when you give, do you give as an outflow of self-centering based on what you love and value? Like, do you have a, like, do you have a list of priorities? And, and what do those priorities of places and people you give to, do those reflect Jesus' priorities? Or do they reflect yours? Do they reflect Jesus' highest priority in that he describes the church as his bride, his the love of his life. And I say this because generosity toward the church is making room for Jesus in his household by making room for others in his body. It's the best part. I love it. So like any other muscle, like I, I use this as an example because there, it, it, God, there, there is no example of, of where we have this opportunity during Advent to ask if our priorities align with Jesus, of watching because like any other muscle, we train our heart to wait by exercising it. In this case, with generosity. And as you steward what Jesus entrusts you to according to his priorities, more than your heart's desires, then your heart's desire will grow to align with his. That's why scripture refers to discipleship and spiritual formation and, and growing as following Jesus. Jesus because you are walking in his footsteps. And as you do, you gain his heart. And then we might actually believe instead of just aspire to what he says when he says, it's better to give than to receive. <laughs> in some, and I don't want to, like, don't focus on the money piece. Uh, and by the way, that's not like an implicit guilt trip, especially for, if you're visiting, like ignore everything I just said, except the lesson learned from it. Um, the point of this is, is to, Advent is an opportunity to ask whether Jesus is our long-awaited Messiah or a mascot, right? Are you the servant making room for him and his word and his purposes? Or is he on the sidelines cheering you on to fulfill your desires and run faster according to your purpose? Okay, so that's watching. Here's waking. Waking is making haste for Christ's return. Waking is is an eager anticipation. It's an urgency and an excitement, right? There's a kind of waiting that does the opposite. There's a kind of waiting that anesthetizes, right? There's a waiting that is passive and fueled by empty spiritual calories, right? We know what the, we're familiar with this. We know what this is like. We, you, know, you just want to turn off to binge watch and or. You want to avoid life's difficulties by being consumed with things that you have little to no agency to affect at all because that's a lot safer than having to be responsible for that. Or maybe you're overworking in an attempt to fill a God-sized hole in our hearts. That's just my junk food of choice. I mean, we can get into yours. 
When we don't make haste for the second advent, for Jesus' return, instead of waking, what we're doing is we're sleepwalking. We're believing that Jesus will return. We, we kind of give some intellectual assent to that, and, and we know that he's going to make all things new, but we live without any eager urgency thereof. It doesn't backfill into our hearts. It doesn't, it doesn't cause our hearts to wonder, to imagine the excitement that that will bring. This is largely, I think, I'm convinced we've, we've forgotten something. We've forgotten that the church's clock is not the world's clock. Like, we judge by a different timepiece, and we keep time very differently. Our master is away from the house, but his absence has been overcome. There's a, there's a paradox there, right? He's away, but his absence has been overcome. And that has cosmic implications for how we keep time in our waiting. Like 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, the hour is late. He says, what I mean, brothers and sisters, is that time is short. For this world in its present form is, this is the present tense, is passing away. Jesus says in John 4, the wait is over. The hour is coming and is now here. This is this already but not yet tension that we live in a New Testament era of and we need Advent as an opportunity to remember that we keep time differently. This is the last thing I'll say before we jump into the Q&A. But if we are keeping time differently, that means that we are spending our time differently. And I don't mean this in the same sense of the priorities of watching. I mean, I mean something far more primal and something far more internal. That the way that we spend time, no matter what it is that we're doing, is actually in this joyful anticipation. It is eagerly preparing for his return. So to, because to live between the first and second advent is to wake up to this new chronological reality that was birthed on Christmas morning that even as eternity assumed mortality then, our mortality assumes eternity now. Let me say that again. As eternity assumed mortality then, our mortality assumes eternity now. That's the gift. That's the gift of Christmas. If we get that in our waiting, in our watching, in our waking, and we allow that to affect our hearts, then his imminent return becomes this animating force, this urgent, joyful motivation for day-to-day -day life. Waiting wakefully is whatever the opposite of killing time is or looking busy because it asks the question, how can you sleep through life? How can you sleepwalk? Don't go to bed. He'll be back any moment. The feast is about to begin. The king is coming. Hallelujah. Stay awake and watch for his return. see if we have any questions this morning. Apparently we don't because I was very short by comparison to my norm. When I say, and I'm going to, as I said, I'm going to stay away from the communion tables this morning. Um, and so I'm going to kind of set up communion from here. But when I say, said earlier that Advent helps us to, it's like a fast, it's a spiritual fast before the feast. It's actually very instructive and helpful to understand and see all of life through a very similar lens. That we have these opportunities to 
get a snack along the way, but there's a snack that is, that is the empty calories, and then there's a snack that is sustaining, that helps us get to the feast. That's what communion is. It's a better... I, I, it's, there's actually something inside of me dying right now by describing communion as a snack, but it actually is if Jesus isn't in it. Apart from Christ, apart from what He's done, and apart from His return, this is just a snack just like anything else in life. But because of that, it transforms and changes everything. And it will transform and change you too. Not because it's magical, it's just regular, ordinary, you know, gluten-free bread, by the way, um, and wine or juice. But it is, it is an act of faith to take communion that draws on and leans into Jesus' sustaining love until his return. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus was with his disciples he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body. It is broken for you. So as you encounter all of these reminders of brokenness in the world, you will know that I have not set myself apart from it, but I have set myself apart in it. Likewise, he took the wine, he poured it out, and he says, this blood is the blood of the new covenant. It is given for the remission of sins, which is a fancy way of saying that I am cleaning you. You are washing up for the great feast to come, and that has already been done, and there's nothing left to do. It is finished. You are loved. This is your place at my table. He says, as often as you eat this bread and you drink this wine, you align your priorities to mine. You proclaim my death and the love that I have for my people until I return, and you invite other people into the master's household along the way. If that is your hope, even just a little bit, if you're, if you're saying, like, actually, it's not my hope, but I want it to be, that counts. This is for you. Let me pray. Jesus, it is a strange thing to thank you for the ways our waiting is frustrated. It's a weird thing to ask that you would help us to see the good in our longing, but that's what Advent is, because you satisfy us, and you redeem us. You save us from ourselves, and you invite yourself in. You make yourself at home, and you make your people your home. Lord, you are the master of the house. We are your servants, and Lord, we ask that you nourish us for the work that you have for us. Lord, be with us, and come home quickly even as you are here already now. Lord, we pray all this in your name. Amen.